Welcome to MicroCollege, a podcast exploring innovative, place-based, and humanly scaled responses to the crises in higher education, meaning, and discourse in our time. Everyone knows that colleges and universities are at a breaking point, but what can be done? I'm Jacob Hunt, the director of Thoreau College, a micro-college in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Join us each week as we tackle this question head-on. Welcome to MicroCollege. This week, our guests are Bridget O'Brien and Dr. Charlie Brennan, who together are the leaders and founders of the Garden Juju Collective. Um, Bridget and Charlie are in town here in late September in Viroqua um, to do a pair of weekend workshops with the Driftless Folk School. Um, some of the first events we've had on our new Thoreau College campus, actually. Um, and they also um, contributed, they were, they were leaders of, a, of our summer walkabout program in the summer of, of 2021. Um, their specialties are permaculture and design, eco-psychology, land healing, um, and, and in general, bringing, bringing perspectives on life and on land stewardship um, from, from a broad range of sources. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us, Jacob. Yeah. Thank you, Jacob. Um, yeah, it's been your your courses last year and this year have been a real enrichment to the programs that we've been able to offer here, and and I really appreciate the way that you've brought together um, different fields of life. People think about permaculture as being about agriculture, um, about land, which it is, but also you've you can you've brought the perspective that's a lot more than that. So, I guess here on on micro college, we'd like to ground whatever people are bringing in their life experiences and in their biographies. So maybe. Um, if you could just share with us a bit about, if you can think back to where you were, 18 to 20 years old, setting out on your adult journey, where were you, what were you doing, and what, was, what were the really impactful things you experienced in that period of life? Charlie? Yep. Okay. I sometimes ask people, what, uh, how come you ended up being weird? <laughs> and definitely, that was a time of my life that helped me become weird. Uh, 17 through to 21 were some quite big uh, events and changes in my life. I was um, at 17, I was going to school, an international school in Singapore, and then I moved to Australia fairly quickly with my family, decided I didn't like Australia, moved back to the UK where I was originally from, finished my studies, got to Australia, started going to university, decided I didn't like Australia uh, or university that much. And I then became a gardener, professional gardener, market gardening, landscaping, that kind of thing. So it was a time of uh, privilege, for sure, different cultures, but also some fairly quick changes between, between countries. And I mean, I, I had been captured by lots of sustainability literature at the time, so I was a big reader. I was very into education, but I couldn't find an educational slot that suited me, I didn't think. So I was a reader of limits to growth and small is beautiful and um, the Tao of physics and all those kind of seminal texts and I carried them around with me but I couldn't find a formal institution that worked for me and so I became a gardener and through gardening I I think I got to know I got to express things that I needed to express even though I didn't know what they were at the time hmm. so I was very physical doing a lot of digging a lot of gardening a lot of um, market gardening, growing food, having chickens. Um, it was a time of, for me, it was definitely a time of being weird. I was quite lost as a person. It took me sudden changes of place in life, can be very privileged, but also quite unsettling. 
And it took me probably another 10 years of, of then going back to university to study social ecology and place and eco-psychology for me to start understanding what, that, what those experiences had been and turn them into being something weirdly numbing into something positive and exciting. Mm. There's a lot of things in that story that resonate from, from many of the students who've come through Thoreau College so far, mm. including the experience of, of trying out going to university and mm. decide instead to be a gardener. Mm. We've had several people, I think, who, who've taken that path. Um, I guess you, you use the word weird, right, advisedly, right? Mm. I, think, um, I think that's, of course, that's often from other people's perspective. I mean, yeah. why do you, what, what, what was weird about it? Well, I'm being, I'm using the word ironic, you know, because <laughs> these people are weird, you know. Um, it gave, gave me a, diff a different approach to life to many of my contemporaries. So apart from finding gardening and farming and physicality so exciting and something I was so driven to do, I also found myself in some very liminal spaces between cultures, between ideas, between... So at that time, that was difficult and challenging. It was a fee... I'm reminded of a book by Rebecca Solnit, The Field Guide of Being Lost. Mm -hmm. I could have been carrying that book at that time, I feel. It was definitely a time of feeling lost a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of searching, some loneliness, some uncertainty, some finding new places quite quickly. And how did you connect with gardening as, as, the, as the way forward, the way in that moment of lostness? I had come from a gardening and farming background, so I grew up in the UK on a farm, partly. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with tools in, in my hands and fields and, and turning the soil and trimming of hedges and planting of trees. And, and also uh, in that sort of in-between place between very s cultivated landscapes, classical British landscapes of hedges and rolling hills, and then up, in the up, in the up at the top there, the wild moorlands, where the, the winds and rains and snows whip through. And it's wild up there. And I was drawn to both those kinds of places. Mm. Yeah, so um, I actually did a my thesis was autobiographic, so I explored this in some depth, and I think it's Albert Camus who says that one of the things we try and do in our life is relive a couple of early images in our life. There's a couple of images that had captured us, and one of them is working with my granddad on the farm as his kind of assistant, of digging and carrying and purposefully working around the farm, and the other so that was an exciting thing. The other excitement was encountering books around sustainability. And that suddenly lit up my world. Like I had a purpose. I'd found purpose. Beautiful. Bridget, what about you? Hmm. I don't think mine was nearly as adventuresome or eloquent, but uh, that, uh, that time in my life, uh, I, I, I feel like I had a lot of, I'd have moments of clarity of like the direction I wanted to go and saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go play sport in university, and I'm going to, you know, follow this path. And then I had blew out my knee my senior year of high school, and I was like, okay, so I'm not joining the Air Force and playing sport. <laughs> <laughs> That's not happening. Now what? Okay, um, so I went to a local community college and started studying, and decided, okay, I wanted to um, utilize my skills of art and design, and I um, and and um, kind of uh, um, curating things. Like I like to make things beautiful, something I learned at a young age. So I tried going to marketing and merchandising school, which worked out well for me. I got very good grades um, in that early time um, in community college. I 
uh, took a yoga class, and that changed my life mm -hmm. because I um, was also later in life and in my high school career diagnosed with ADHD and uh, had a really hard time understanding how to manage that without medication. When I went to college, I found ways to manage that without medication. So by the time I ended up in uh, merchandising school in Chicago, I had tools and techniques, and I was able to actually excel in you know, uh, a school setting for the first time, basically, in my life. And those are tools from yoga. Yeah, 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 tools from yoga. Breathing, movement. I mean, I was always an athlete, but after having injuries, I had to relearn how to be an athlete that was more gentle on my body. So that, that helped me a ton. Um, more than I could really probably uh, explain. And and those are tools that um, maybe I didn't practice yoga every day when I was in school in Chicago, but uh, the breathing techniques or the understanding of how my body worked, how my brain was trying to work, um, and being in a setting in school that were classes that I chose to take, that I wanted to take, like I wasn't forced to take, um, made a really big difference um, in my academic success. Um, I then, decided that was not really what I wanted to do because I grew up in Michigan. I grew up in uh, the lakes and the mm -hmm. trees and having all that around me and living in the kind of the fashion world and in that fast retail world was not, <laughs> not really me. <laughs> so I came back to Michigan pretty quickly and tried to go and um, I had worked with a uh, I had done some volunteer work in the south side of Chicago with an art teacher during my time in Chicago and really fell in love with teaching art and teaching and education in that realm. So I came back and I, I started studying um, early uh, education and art education at, again, the same community college where I my life kind of transformed. I then was ready to move on to another university to get that degree. And when I went there, I was told uh, that I had to spend a bunch of money, basically pay for a semester of school, um, and then I could go to the dean of each department that I had a class in in my previous college, a private, well, it was a private mm -hmm. university in Chicago, and prove to them why I deserved my grades to be transferred. And I was really devastated by that because I had worked extraordinarily hard and gotten the best GPA I'd ever gotten in my life um, in Chicago, and then to be told that my credits didn't count, that that work didn't count, unless I gave them a bunch of money and proved myself to them, which I kind of said, that's, no, no. <laughs> I said no. <laughs> and I left university at that point and kind of set out on a path of trying to figure out how to, um, to work and to live in a way that I didn't need a piece of paper to prove that I could do something. Pretty, um, I'm, I can be pretty defiant by nature, <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, so it was. It was kind of this rebellion against the system uh, that was really frustrating to me because I felt like I had finally figured out how to work with the system, and and then that was thrown at me. So I started exploring lots of different avenues. And at that time, when I had come back to Michigan, I actually had started working in a flower shop. Mm -hmm. I started working with plants. Uh, I started learning how to garden, even if it was just growing house plants and cut flowers and playing with um, plants. Um, even though they were covered in poison, it was still very exciting <laughs> <laughs> and um, interesting because it was a new form of art for me that I got to express myself with and learn from um, mentors. And that was kind of where I uh, started up this process of finding mentors. And so the woman that I worked for in that flower shop was kind of my first 
real mentor. I would say probably my swim coaches and other people mm -hmm. previously were also mentors to me and kind of taught me the ropes. So um, I, was, I, I started that in that flower shop and kind of just started the next job I had, I would find someone in that work environment that I was really interested in what they were doing and why they were doing it. And I would kind of try to ask them lots of questions and learn what they did and how they did it. Um, I did a lot of retail work, but it all kind of fell in this gardening world um, and, and worked at different nurseries and landscape centers. I actually worked at breweries for a while. Um, I was raised in a brewing family where we make a lot of beer, so mm -hmm. I found mentors in that field as well, too. And, and that's kind of how I have gotten to where I am today. I have gone back and done some certifi certificate programs of like you know permaculture design courses and, mm -hmm. and teacher trainings and things like that. Um, but was never, even though I tried a few times to go back to college, I, was, I have never had the ability financially and um, life balance wise to do so. So I still to this day find mentors in fields that I'm interested in. Um, and luckily enough right now, my partner and husband <laughs> is my mentor as well too <laughs> in the fields of uh, social ecology and um, just kind of this wider one thing that I've learned a lot from him recently in the last couple of years since we had to be separated during COVID, I had to take on the role of project managing some of these landscape projects we do, which is kind of a role I've had to step into um, and he kind of mentored me through. So uh, that's, I think, how I've, I've learned. It's been a lot of like self-motivation and a lot of um, curiosity. So a lot of book reading, a lot of video watching, a lot of asking questions, finding people that are, are doing cool and interesting things. So um, taking a forest garden design training a number of years ago, I, I met Dave Jackie and I'm still in, in contact with him and still use him as a mentor and a friend at this point as well too. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so this theme of mentors has been a really important one in these mm. interviews. And I think as a, you know, part of the purpose of, of this podcast is, is our continuing research and development about how the Rail College might be organized and to share those, whatever we've learned with everyone listening. Um, but certainly, like, connecting, creating context in which people connect with mentors and, 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 and that type of development that you're talking about can happen is clearly it's it's it shows up in almost everyone's story. There was that person, the mentor, um, and, and I'm just well, question. I'm, I'm I'm wondering is how do you create a context in which that type of interaction can flourish? Right? You did it for yourself. You kind of you kind of drove on through, but maybe not everyone has that personality, or or is yeah. it a context where that can happen? <laughs> is that determined? I mean, for me, it was also finding jobs that I was interested in. I never went for the job that paid me the most money. I went for the job that I was the most interested in learning about. So. Um, getting different offers at different times or exploring different work paths. Like um, one time I had an offer to basically potentially take over and uh, take on a, uh, a plant, uh, I'm sorry, a perennial plant nursery. So growing herbaceous perennials and the woman kind of wanted to take me on and teach me everything and then give, you know, sell me the business. And it's like, okay, that's cool. But I know a lot of that stuff. And another offer was to go work at a nursery that specialized in trees and um, a broad range of native and non-native ornamental trees that I did not know as much about. And so I took the job with the native uh, with the tree nursery instead because I wanted to learn that. But what I'm finding fascinating now as I'm getting older is some of the people that work with us that are curious about what we do, uh, I also feel like I'm being mentored by them and like finding these mm -hmm. younger people in my life to help 
mentor me and stay current and understand what's kind of going on in the world. Well, that's the, the teacher's uh, secret is really yeah. you, you do it for your, <laughs> one of the reasons you do it is your continued self-development, yeah, yeah, right? Because yeah. that happens continuously. Yeah. And certainly something I appreciate about being an educator is, mm-hmm. is everything I learned from oh, yeah. from students and uh, every year. Because they are, you know, I think about you know, young people are closer to the source, mm-hmm. right? They've mm-hmm. come more recently into the world and uh, and and they have important things to say, so... Micro College is recorded in the broadcast studios of WDRT Viroqua, 91.9 FM, Driftless Community Radio, on Main Street in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Thanks to Jim and all the folks at WDRT for the support of Thoreau College and the Micro College podcast. I guess another thing um, that is a theme that's shown up in our interviews are... um, is actually ADD, <laughs> ADHD, or and, and other sorts of, of, of learning differences, but especially ADD. And and uh, I'm wondering, like that, what you've you learned about education, you know, navigating your own self understanding, um, you know, what what type of scenarios do you learn best in with your your learning type? Have you found? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I like to have uh, multiple forms of stimulation. Kinesthetic things are really good for me. I, I'm seeing as so I'm yoga, yeah, yeah, yoga, like having that movement, um, like actual, like physical gardening. You know, you, I learned so much of that by doing it. By I used to call myself a patchwork gardener, so I used to go and I would plant stuff and be like, "Oh, that's not working there," and move it over here and move it over there until I found a spot that it flourished. And um, I think the actual doing, so like. It is really the, the kinesthetic is important to me, which is not something you get in traditional public schools, um, which is how you know I was set, told to sit down and do the, the, the crossword, which was terrifying to me with my slight dyslexia as well too. I was <laughs> like, the right box. Yeah, yeah, this is not all the things I cannot, um, and that's where they asked me to thrive. So as I got older, being able to have blocks of classes or being able to switch the classes up, having time to go outside and do things or have time to exercise in between um, classes and things like that made a big difference. So um, I, I do like multiple forms of stimulation too. Like I like to have music playing while I'm doing stuff or like I'll always, if I'm listening to something, I'm always writing notes while I'm doing it, whether I look at those notes ever again or not. It's just that, that kind of aesthetic aspect is important. Yeah. Great. So... I think um, many people listening to this podcast will have heard the word permaculture um, and maybe have a very vague notion of it, but here we have the opportunity to have two people who've really devoted themselves in some serious way to this concept. So could you, could you define that as, as, a, as a term for, for us? Sure. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that one thing that we do is we weave permaculture with other approaches, so it's not our only approach. And the it seems thing, to be part of permaculture in general, right? <laughs> well, well, we hope. <laughs> there, there are some people who are inclined to make permaculture their doctrine. Mm-hmm. We would like to say permaculture is part of our practice. So, and we have two, there's two sort of definitions of permaculture that um, we work in amongst. I think some, one of them is that it's kind of shorthand for perennial food gardens. That's a permaculture garden over there. When you put in your permaculture project together, it's sustainable landscapes and particularly perennial food is often and perennial meaning this is not things you have to plant every year it's yeah not it goes it comes goes through the years it's self-sustaining to a large extent mm-hmm. and, and that's great but we would like to see a wider definition probably of permaculture which is how do you design and enact sustainable living mm-hmm. in all the ways 
So yes, it is definitely landscape orientated. It's definitely um, about food growing and food storing and food and composting and so on. But it's also about your transport. It's also about your um, relationships, businesses, education, sense of self in the world, and that's anything. It's and and I think we think there are three or four things about permaculture. In all frankness, permaculture is both genius and flawed. Like any, probably, probably any movement. So it's not like we're in absolute rapture to permaculture all the time. But some of the advantages of permaculture are um, its emphasis on the redesignability of just about everything in the world. Mm-hmm. Design, design, design. It's fantastic. You know. Another thing about permaculture which is amazing is it's, it really acknowledges the organic living world. It does, it does. And, and that is fantastic because much of our society is blind to the living world. Um, it also gives a, f- it's probably the best framework that I, we know about for designing a sustainable life full stop because it can take everything into it. That's unusual. It doesn't specialize in one area or another. So, And another reason, another thing that permaculture is great at is it's a still an idea that endures for 30, 40 plus years further on. There are thousands of movements and ideas and authors who've done things in that time that are great. But this one has endured, it keeps on going. So it galvanizes people's actions. And another thing about it is that it's, it's easy to access. There's lots of fields you can't access very easily. Anyone can pretty much go to a PDC course or an introductory course or watch some videos and say, oh, I think I get that video thing, find a permaculture mentor, find a few people, and off you go. You're in the world of permaculture. Many other worlds are much more excluding mm-hmm. than that. So permaculture, it's flawed, it's genius, it's a fantastic set of systems and, and approaches, and it's how, the way we t- take it is how do we sustain, a, um, how do we design and enact a sustainable life in, in all the ways. And, um, and our particular interest also is, is in how that relates to people and their mobility. So if I put my social science hat on, because I used to teach social sciences at university, we privilege the idea of settlement to some extent in our society, mm-hmm. and that's great. We all need settlements. We're staying in a settlement right now. <laughs> you know, so not, <laughs> um, but we, under, we, sort of, we silence ideas of mobility and movement. We all probably move far more than we think, and there are many, many people now who are looking for a permaculture support, or, and, and then they're not really likely to have a homestead in, right. in the next while, either through choice or through circumstance. And so, and many people have said to us, well, I, I live in social housing and I move heaps, or I've just been kicked out of my place. How's permaculture going to help me? Or I'm a refugee. Or, okay. or you're a college student. Yeah. Or you're a college student. <laughs> or my life's just turned to or compost and I don't know what to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we're particularly interested, in, and, we, and we've called that permacu- a walkabout permaculture. So how do you design a sustainable life that involves a high degree of geographic mobility? And so, yeah, what, what does that look like? I mean, because certainly I think people who know a little bit about permaculture will think a lot about planting trees and reshaping the way that water flows, things that are very like, I'm going to be here for a long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how often as, as consultants do we see people who think they were doing that seven years ago, but they've moved since? Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's relevant to just, just about everybody is how do you design a mo- mobile, even for the college itself, and maybe, maybe come back, mm-hmm. back around to that. 
Um, yeah, it's a challenge because we have set ideas about how things are. So this is a little bit out of the out of the normal. So what are some of the things that are really good about sustainable life? Well, one of them, for instance, is foraging as a skill, which is a mobile skill. There's the flip side of that mm -hmm. is how do you set up foraging in the world for people? How right. the access to the land, right? Commons, yeah. things like that. I mean, those are yeah. techniques and skills that our ancestors and the indigenous people of this landscape and many landscapes have been doing is moving these these genetics through seeds and and fruit and things and plants and moving them along so they had medicine along their journeys and their trails and to trade and to exchange. So these are ancient skills that we're having to relearn but are key to us being able to thrive as we move. Um, and knowing when you move into maybe a new apartment or even a new home and know, being able to walk the land and say, oh, that's edible, that's medicinal, or I can use this for that, I can do, before you start digging things up, before you start planting, being able to take that inventory or know um, the place that you walk and travel every day where the fruit trees are, the nut trees are, super important skill that we're, we have lost and are working towards regaining collectively. It's a way of separating this from, from land ownership, from mm -hmm. this is my plot of land and I'm gonna, mm -hmm. I'm gonna shape it to, to my imagination, even if that's a permaculture imagination. Mm. Well, you may do that. So if, if you're a, a traveling person, you probably have multiple bases. Not like you're moving the entire time, but you might have half a different, dozen different bases that you go to from time to time. And you might have an arrangement with the people who, who do, do own that land or manage that land. And so you go in there as a gardener for a month at some stage and you jump back into your van and you travel somewhere else. And you, so you're, it's offered an exchange of skills and, and so on. A lot of people have also been thinking about, well, how, if I live in a van, how do I make that feel sustainable? And sustainable is also a word that's worth questioning too. Sustainability is implies everything keeping going along the same route. Well, that's not good enough these days, arguably. So then we move into how to make this a regenerative thing or sure. a generative thing. And then, as per the other day's session, that's probably not quite good enough also because there's a lot of hurts in the world. So how do we make this a healing and healthy thing? So sustainability, regeneration, and healing. And a lot of the time our workshops are people sitting around going, well, what do you do when you drive your van around? How do you deal with your recycling? How do you make your van feel homely? How do you deal with loneliness? How do you, you know, so we keep it as like an open forum. The other side of it in Australia too is we've been lucky enough to, to be invited into relationship with some elders there. And we have permission from some elders to use the term walkabout. And when we're there, we, we co-teach, co-facilitate with elders. And so that, mm -hmm. it's sort of a post-modernist thing of what do we do in a post-industrial society when half of us are m mobile. And it's also like paying respects to other ways of living on the traditional ways of living on the land, which were often much more mobile. Yeah. So it's a different kind of relationship to land, landscape. Yeah, that's something that stands out in your in your materials and in the perspective. And I think that um, I can certainly think in my lifetime dawning on you know Western consciousness, the idea that there is a different way to live in a landscape, right? That's that's not it's not a wilderness. It is actually a, an interactive kind of relationship that is is uh, it is um, it is permacultural in the sense, but it's not ownership in the same way. Yeah, I think it's more fluid. Yeah. Yeah, both yeah, mm. Australia, but certainly North America as well. Like yeah. those are that's a dawning awareness. That's certainly in my life. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So that's a bit about permaculture and a bit about our interest in particularly this idea of walkabout permaculture or permaculture that involves an emphasis upon mobility.
I think, and I think the, the point also about the redesignability of everything um, is a huge point in the work that we do. I'm pretty obsessed with design and design process. <laughs> we, we've been, uh, we worked for eight years um, on developing the ADAPT design game. Yes, I definitely wanted to ask you about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it's, it's inspired by permaculture, but it's also uh, interwoven into it our multiple fields of study when it comes to design process and the way we live and work and design intuitively and instinctually um, in our daily lives. So I, before we step into that for a second, I just wanted to step back and, yeah. and say, I mean, uh, another thing that comes through in your literature is, is, is play. Mm. Right, and of course, you are the inventor of a board game, and uh, and uh, that that's really great. But I think that also, I think just from you, your description of your life stories, both of you, you know, curiosity, weirdness, you know, mm -hmm. there's there's a playfulness in what you're bringing, and so and I think that you bring that right into into your your collective here, the Garden Juju Collective. Yeah. Um, we're gonna get to adapt in a second, yeah, but maybe you could fine. just step back and give that context of your work now. What what is Garden Juju, and yeah. and, and what yeah, is yeah. what do you what do you mean by that? I mean Juju. We'll just start there. So that Juju. Um, spelled differently than we spell it um, in French means play. So it's about playfulness. Jujou. It's about, yeah, <laughs> it's about play. It's about magic. It's, um, it's about the mystery of life. Um, we we uh, came up with the name uh, as we were kind of jokingly. Um, we're both gardeners, and but we we see life and the work that we do as, as a form of cultivation. And so you can cultivate the landscape. You can cultivate relationships. Um, so we see ourselves as gardeners in many forms. Um, and then Juju, we actually were harvesting some wild grapes one day and some wild crab apples and making all these different sauces and stuff out of them. And then we just started calling some of it Juju, like, where's that grape Juju? Because it wasn't a jam, it wasn't a jelly, it wasn't a, it was like, what? I don't know what it is, like some kind of juice, it's Juju. It's um, bursting with life energy. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I mean, like the, the flavors of it are not that, you know, if you've eaten wild, grapes or process them. It's not of a Concord or a St. Croix or a, any of the cultivators. It could be a cultivars. surprise. Yeah, it's like, it could be a surprise. And it just has this this potency and this power and this magic in it um, that you don't get from some of those cultivars. And, um, and we like that. And we started playing with that. And that's something. So it's like this cultivation of life, um, magic and juice and energy and play. Um, and we don't do any of this work by ourselves, you know. Uh, but uh, none of the work that we do is alone, whether it's Charlie and I, or it's a collective of people, or it's working with uh, the more than human out in the world, the plants, the animals, the soil, the, uh, all of it. So that's why we call it Garden Juju Collective, because it's a collective effort, all of this work that we do. So you do workshops like the ones you're doing here, mm -hmm. elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, you're also doing design projects, mm -hmm. um, and yep. you've got the game. Is that, mm -hmm. is there what else, anything else going to that mix? We could probably add that Quite a few of the projects we do are large-scale farm regeneration projects. We take uh -huh. on big projects, pretty courageous out-there designs, long-term designs. So we're, one of our little catchphrases is that we've barely begun to create what we can create. Mm -hmm. We both believe we could be doing far more than we're doing. Yeah. There's the f all the fields of um, horticulture, biodynamics, uh, landscape engineering, um, earth-moving, and that's not even to talk about um, structures or eco-psychology or sense of place or all the, you know, all the other energies that we're, we're yeah. playing with. So big scale projects is yeah. really how we make our living, though it's super physical <laughs> and um, 
we quite like the idea of transitioning over to <laughs> more, 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 more education, <laughs> something that's more regenerative, healing yeah. and sustainable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we do a fair bit of mentoring as well. Yeah. So we take on people uh, with projects and... We love working with community gardens. It's a fun mentoring. We also like working with people that really are do it themselves. Or like they want to do the gardening themselves. They want to learn this stuff. Um, and that I always, when I was doing ornamental landscaping, uh, people would ask me to help them, and I would say only if you want to learn how to do it. I'm not going to come put a garden in for you and come take care of it. Like if you want to no. learn how to do it, then I'll help you. And that's kind of the philosophy we've taken on with a lot of this. So these big scale projects, we actually. You know, we're not always there working on them after we design them and install them. We're training groups of people to do it. Um, and when we're working with homeowners or community gardens, we're helping train them to actually keep implementing and keep the work going. So that's something we love. So it's a, a form of education within this, this physical work that we're doing. Um, and that's something that we think is super important because we obviously are educators and love doing that, but we like doing the physical as well. Yeah. We want to show people what, it, what is possible. The other aspect of the sort of walkabout thing is that um, we travel a lot. So we, we don't own land. We don't have, we don't, not in that position. We travel a lot and we, um, we tend to find as many projects as we can, people, practices, projects. And one of the things we'd like to do, first of all, is to acknowledge what people are doing because there are many, many people who are spending decades of their lives trying things out, often against the gets the stream, you know, gets the flow of the stream, putting all their resources and time into mm -hmm. things, trying to do nurseries or education programs or landscapes or food forests or regenerate, you know. And so we'd like to acknowledge that incredible effort that people put in. And then we often try to work out what is working, because a lot of projects, to be entirely honest again, are not working very well at all. Mm -hmm. You go to some projects with have big flashing neon lights and you, you go to them and you go, hmm, oh dear. Whew, this is a lot of energy and it's really not doesn't but some are very successful and mm -hmm. so we want to learn understand what is successful the, the elements of success because there's nothing more important in the world right now arguably than that these sustainability regeneration healing projects be successful and be replicated at larger and larger scales that's as, as an overarching thing it is the most important thing i think yeah we think yeah so yeah i really yeah. appreciate <coughs> folks who are doing what you're doing, traveling from place to place. I think yeah. this micro-college movement and, and, and agriculture of the kind that we're talking about requires both people to be like in place, <clears throat> rooted, mm -hmm. take the long view, and um, and also the pollinators, right? Yeah. People who, who, who are bringing ideas and, and, and connections between people. So mm -hmm. thank you for that work. Yeah. <laughs> I've done my time in communities for a long, long time <laughs> yep. in one place. Well, every, everybody else is moving around and I'm like, back at the creek again, weeding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, that that's important for young people as well to see those two, two possibilities because mm -hmm. there are, you know, coming into Thoreau College, mm -hmm. people who are looking for a place to live. They are thinking mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. and do move here and, and stay here or someplace like this. And there are people who are like, no, I may not ever do that. I want to, I'm a traveler. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm one of mobility is, mm -hmm. is, is something that's a value that's important to me. Mm -hmm. And as, you know, definitely as an educator, I see my work as helping people to flesh out their sense of, of calling. And, 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 and that also is a vision of, of a life of flourishing and that mm -hmm. could involve mobility or place or settling you could say <laughs> and pulsing between the two yeah yeah mm -hmm. different phases of life it's yeah yeah definitely different phases
The Driftless Folk School, located in the beautiful rolling hills and valleys of southwest Wisconsin, is a community of lifelong learners dedicated to cultivating personal and cultural resilience through hands-on educational experiences. The Driftless Folk School offers classes in agriculture, land stewardship, natural history, folk arts and crafts, herbalism, wilderness skills, and more. For further information on the Driftless Folk School, visit us at driftlessfolkschool.org on the World Wide Web. So tell us about ADAPT. <laughs> Just, uh, and and, and uh, yeah, so this, this, is, this is a board game. And first of all, if people are interested, they're intrigued by what you're going to say, where would they get it? Yes, you can look at playadapt.com to learn more about the game, or gardenjujucollective.com uh, has uh, information about the game. You can buy it there. You can learn more about the courses. We're trying to... And we'll put those links into the, yeah. to the notes for the show, okay. too. So. And uh, we are starting to run a facilitator's uh, cohort, so online programming where we are taking people that want to integrate the ADAPT game into their work and um, help them... Uh, in like weave it into what they're doing, giving them facilitation techniques and tools and uh, tips and tricks on how to how to do that. So that's something we've been developing for a couple years and we're pretty excited to launch. Uh, we are doing small courses like free game nights like we're doing here this week and also uh, some online courses, uh, just short courses and stuff that we're working on to get people just to start playing with it. But ADAPT is something that was born out of a uh, permaculture teacher training that I did that was very much trying to figure out how to apply permaculture beyond landscapes. So specifically, I was trying to apply permaculture to self-care, and I started kind of weaving some aspects of um, what you see in the game now together. And as I went on that journey, I started trying to understand more and more about the the design framework that is very foundational to permaculture and um, started looking at different fields of study, started taking um, beta versions of the game uh, and sending them to people, taking them to conferences, asking lots of questions, getting anybody who would um, spend some time with me to work through it, um, to play with it. And uh, over, uh, over time, it developed into a board game. And uh, from those beta tests, we learned that people were really playing with the cards um, and they enjoyed the posters and the board, but it was really about these cards, these sets of cards. And, and the, the, the true root of it was like trying to find a way to teach permaculture in a more playful way. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see really any games out there. We, didn't, we couldn't find games around permaculture. Robin Clayfield has some really useful tools that are, are really fun um, and dynamic, but you know, we didn't really see anything that was... Um, that was playful and fun and a game, and and we we know that you know people learn and children learn best through play, um, and having that experience. So we tried to develop something that was was that, um, and so it's a very practical tool. And it you know when we when we say hey you want to play this game, uh, sometimes people are like oh man you really have to think. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's an educational game. You can call it, uh, and and that that was kind of that was always the intention is to make it really educational and informative. Um, 
and it kind of at, through its different um, versions developed to be this um, really holistic tool that uh, the cards can be broken apart and used in different ways and played with in different ways. We know of like 13 or 14 different ways that you can use those 60 cards in the deck, which is pretty oh, wow. pretty fun. So the, the, ba the root of the game is uh, helping people uh, design anything, anywhere, anytime. Uh, and that's, that's the essence of it. So it's uh, a mentor, it's... Um, it's thought-provoking. It kind of asks you questions and mentors responses and, and cultivates answers out of you towards uh, clarifying your aims and clarifying your ideas, figuring out how you're going to take action and implementing that. And I've just been driving around before being here in the UK for two months in a little car I borrowed, loaned off a friend as the adapt tr uh, traveling sales guy. <laughs> <laughs> It's so a dying profession. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, and um, it's 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 interesting. So I presented at a few different places, and then often where I'd be going, there'd be people with various projects or, or people I know who are involved in sustainability and all, all that stuff, and they'd play the game. And I said, well, happy to play the game. It's not a drinking game. Okay? No. Not a drinking <laughs> game. It doesn't go well. It's a game. It's a game that's kind of um, it's for people who are ready to face into the moment. Like, and a lot of people right now, especially in Europe, it's very clear that people are changing direction fast. There's all the fuel stuff, cost of living stuff. There's the Ukraine war, war not very far away. There's climate change absolutely manifesting in all the ways. And there's a lot high levels of anxiety, but also high levels of people taking action. And one of the things the game does is it kind of gets you to go from, you know, dreaming is cool. Like it is dreaming is very, very imagination is very cool, but it doesn't help you take action a lot of the time. Taking action is when you go, okay, what do I really want? What or what do we really need? And then you, through a process like say adapt, you actually break it down, and you look at different angles and sides of it, and eventually go, that's not going to work, but that probably is going to work. So it tips you from a place of dreaming and a bunch of vague ideas uh, through to getting more disciplined about what you think you're going to do. And then basically tips you past a point of dreaming into taking action. And in times like this, where there is a high level of precarity around and people's opportunities are, you know, life is serious for some people right now. There's like, okay, it's time to go and do the thing we always dreamed of. This game is now taking off in the UK. It's taking off in Portugal, where a lot of people are moving to. It's being played in Wales. And people are actually in incorporating it into their lives. And it checks in your project, your aims, how you're going to take action. So it's a little confronting, mm -hmm. yeah. but it's also very empowering. I think it helps that it's framed as a game, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to do a serious, you know, yeah. therapy session here or something like that. Yeah. Um, that would be a different yeah. and also valuable. But like, yeah. I, I do think that the, the, the mode of, of lightness and play that you bring into mm. your name and to, to yeah. much of what you're talking about is yeah. is so important. I know in my work with young young people, there's a lot of like despair. There's yeah. a lot of darkness. There's and so much. Yes. And we need to face up to that that's real and, yeah. and there's meaning to it and, yeah. and but that's you can't stay there right mm -hmm. and no there's a great uh, there's a guy in the UK right now who's becoming very popular quite quickly um, Martin Shaw he's a mythologist mm -hmm. and he recently um, he weaves these long intricate tales very very good storyteller and he recently had one where he said basically uh, in mythology you were often taken to the abyss but you never left there the story takes you away. You get a glimpse of the abyss, and then you're 
the story takes you somewhere else away from that. So it's very important when we have our students and teaching right now. To, I mean, tradi traditionally in permaculture, we used to spend half the first half a day just saying how messed up the world is, you know, and a litany, a list of all the systems which are breaking down. These days we tend to do a little bit of that, then a lot of gratitude and grounding, and then move oh. through to various empowering approaches from there. So yeah, be careful of the yeah. going to that abyss edge. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I, I think one of the great things about the adapt game is 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 uh, those aha moments that people get when they're playing it. They're like, they can see it. They can like ha they had this idea that's been like floating around or this thing they wanted to do. And as they're like working through the game, and they're like, ah, oh, and like you can see it in their face. It like literally changes. Or mm. sometimes we'll present it at a conference to a big room of people and. And you know everyone mills away and goes to the next thing, and then like the next day you're sitting at the lunch table and someone sits down next to you and you're like, okay, so I've been thinking like <laughs> you just like didn't sleep because this this tool which is helping you go through a design process just gets you thinking. So if you play the game a couple times and your way of thinking doesn't change, then you're you're probably not paying attention or you're not really invested. It, it's literally made to help change the way people think and to help us think more regeneratively and more thoughtfully and more holistically and more consciously about the choices that we're making. So trying to hack habituated and hack habituated thoughts and just and, and work more consciously towards a, the goals and desires that we have. Yeah. So I <clears throat> one of the questions that, that uh, I wanted to ask you and thinking about this game and, 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 the, and the scope that, that can be applied right beyond agriculture, beyond land management in this wide scope way that you're talking about. So if, if we have a, some of our, our listeners are young people who are deciding what to do, they're leaving high school, they're, what's next? How might you apply these, these principles, these kind of design and redesign kind of principles, um, the adaptation pr principles that you're bringing to one's, one's first steps into adult life? I think the radical redesign tips and tools that we offer, they're on our website and our in our blog post. It's a free offering that we have. Um, and it's also a part of the cards in the emergent deck um, that we have. But they they get you to question things. So instead of, um, I know that I, I struggled a lot when I was 17, 18, 19 with the like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. and. Um, I, I would never really conformed or was able to, to live in the way that, you know, a lot of my peers did, and, and that was challenging, and, um, but also f it is who I am. So the radical redesign tips and tricks are a lot of things like drop your story. What assumptions are you making? Mm -hmm. Dream bigger. Dream smaller. So it's it's kind of change your scale. Yeah. 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 Change mm -hmm. change your scale. Um, ask ask thought provoking questions to yourself. And so if you're feeling like you have to go down this certain path, or um, you think this is what you need to be doing, it's like, well, what if you did the opposite? We have a card that's called Flip the Design. Like, what if you did the opposite of what you're doing? So I think it's really good in in this really challenging time. Even if you end up with the same answer, to at least question and challenge. Um, what, what you're doing, what you're thinking, um, and, and where you think you need to be going. I think you said it earlier, Jacob, it's important to find people to find their calling. And one's calling is one's calling. Mm -hmm. So you, you can't comment on what someone's calling is, as long as it's not overtly harmful to other beings or themselves. But um, there are a lot of people in the world now look at their voting patterns, look at their general choices in life, who didn't create the world that we're in. Okay, 
happens at high level of disaffection with political parties and institutions and, and so on and so on. So, and there's a lot of information around how many systems are breaking down right now. But I think personally, I think biodiversity is the most confronting one of the lot, probably. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to um, know that there are, are ways out of this. So I feel like this conversation could be happening right now in any one of thousands of towns around the world, that there are currently tens of millions of people having this exact conversation around the world, tens of millions of people. We tend not to see them in the headlines because we tend to see other things in the, in the headlines. So I think it's very important that people know that Thoreau College and Driftless and Garden Juju and Adapt Game, Permaculture, is part of this tens of millions world mm -hmm. where there are people successfully, and often people say, we need to start something new. We say, well, probably, po probably not. Yeah. <laughs> we probably just need to empower the practices which are being lived out right now. And so it's very important that educational institutions and choices and, and people entering this next phase of life know that this is a solid part of the world yeah. that can be entered into You're not if, alone. If, if you wish to. You're not alone. Yeah. 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 And that's, uh, when, uh, that's my favorite moment in any permaculture meeting or permaculture design course is when everyone's introducing themselves and they're like, I'm not alone. Like somebody in the room always says it. Like, oh, there's people out there like me. <laughs> it's yeah. it's kind of also weird. Yeah, yeah exactly. That word weird speaks to a sense of loneliness. That then, yeah. Yeah, that yeah, then, yeah, yeah. If you, you meet other people like you, you're not weird anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. So I mean, we're out here. Yeah. <laughs> yes, your yeah. people are out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So maybe. Uh, Stepping back another step, can we apply that same question to the design of a of, of an institution, an organization, or a program? Um, you know, is it different for thinking about a collective activity as opposed to an individual life, and to to apply some of these redesign or radical redesign principles? To a to an educational institution or to a yeah educational or, program? Or let's say, or? I mean, I think one of one of the things that I see that we are engaged with here is. Redesign, rethinking of mm. higher education, right? Yeah. This this kind of society level institution that has, I would argue, a very large role in the situations that you're describing, mm. right? With the industrial, chemical, agricultural, media complex that we mm. live in. Um, mm. So, in need of redesign, how 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 might you approach that project? Mm. Well, I was lucky enough after many years of not fitting into any educational programs or to encounter social ecology in, in Australia. And I know social ecology as a term originated in, in the US. The work of Murray Book, Bookchin, uh -huh. I think was around Chicago and other places. Mm -hmm. The Australian version of it was a little bit different, but basically what it's doing is it's looking at ecological ways of being in the world, but te definitely folding them in with social and psychological and economic and activist ways of being in the world. And it very much is about um, knowledge domains, transformative learning, action-orientated. Some of the subjects we did at social ecology were chaos and complexity, union psychology, environmental education, queer studies. Um, Eco-design is another, and so on and so on. So um, a place that can offer these knowledges mm -hmm. is an amazing place. A place that can allow different forms of transformative learning, because we're all different, place that looks at knowledge, all the different ways that knowledge is created and transformed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
if you can do that and keep that going for a long time, <laughs> that's amazing. Because I know that social ecology uh, flourished yeah. for a while. When I got there in the mid-90s, or late 90s, it was absolute anarchy. The <laughs> lecturers would like stand up and go, what we're going to do today is, and all the students would go, no, we're not, we're doing something else. And they'd, <laughs> they'd self-form into groups and classes and report in about four hours later. So that, so that happened a lot, you know. But I know that social ecology now is, in its net iteration, has phased out. So I think some of that, a lot of that is informative on the what you influenced in these radical redesign tips and tricks. I mean, mm. this, like, level of don't assume, like, what assumptions are you making? Like, how many times were you asked that or was that provoked out of you within that, that yeah. course of study? So I'd say those radical redesign things, are uh, tips and tools are applicable to just about anyone or any design situation. It's kind of like the adapt game too. It's like you can pull these cards and, and they can apply. Um, you can pull these ideas and, and just start asking more questions, I think, is, is the important takeaway from that. Mm. You were gesturing before to the, these principles of mobility as possibly mm -hmm. being applicable to, to Thoreau College or to a micro college. Um. I guess there's practicalities in that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can just well, say, like, the, the actual practice of Thoreau College has yeah. been, and, and really the Driftless Folk School now for over 15 years, is not having one place. Not perfect. We, we really yeah. travel about the landscape here. Students live in several different houses. They visit many different, you know, natural sites, farms, mm -hmm. you know, different places in the community. Yeah. And, and we actually are, are very mobile yeah. in practice. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. One of the... Um, I'd, I remember... To me, ideas are very exciting, you know. And I, I often remember when I first came across an idea, and you go, and you go, ah, cool, you know. It's an emotional experience. I remember being on a train and reading a, a feminist text on desire, and, and the desire is like an urge to do something that doesn't matter how repressed you're going to be. At some stage, it's going to going to get out. It's like it's like this idea of something can't be repressed, and I think there's a giant desire for people to learn and get skills around sustainability, regeneration, mm -hmm. and, and it's not going to get squashed. Yeah. <laughs> it, or temporarily squashed. It's like push it down there, pops up here. <laughs> so uh, often a, a place like Thoreau, I imagine ideally, is a, a space to hold that desire. Yeah. And then it takes whatever form it takes. Or, or people at this age of life, like the one you described, or yeah. both of you in different ways, of yeah. coming to like yeah. a, a wall in your formal education. Yeah either internally or externally with the, the documents you had to provide, and and then what do you do, mm. right? And, and Thoreau has definitely been that for, for some people, and I think it's it's important to have those places in society for sure. Yeah. I, I think you're the kind of the taking these different, even though it's been challenging, I know at one point you guys invested in a campus and that didn't, didn't sustain it didn't it didn't go on and and you've had you had to switch and it's a similar kind of like okay we've come into this roadblock now what but I think um it's kind of unusual it is for a student to show up and be like okay well where's campus well we just moved into this building here's the bookshelf here's the you know it's kind of probably disorienting to someone who's walked into massive brick buildings that have been there for 100 years and mm -hmm. and those kinds of things but also it, it can um, lead to a fluidity and uh, creativity and um 
and and kind of influence people to kind of challenge the the status quo, which is important um, because they're probably like you said they're coming to it because they've yeah. um, come from a, a challenging position, and you guys have had to adapt and morph and um, adjust from challenging positions. And, and so I do see that that is a response to our times, right? Mm -hmm. These these moments, these world where the climate is changing, where society is changing, you know, where where surprising things occur all the time now, so we're not surprised. Mm -hmm. um, what that calls up is resilience and 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 the need to be flexible, to be mobile, to 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 look at a new situation and adapt to it. And mm -hmm. so that is, I mean, it's important that for me that our our situations, whether the facilities, the programs, are never quite totally fixed because that's I think that that's not good preparation for life as we know mm -hmm. it. Yeah. No, I think also here there's a strong um, strong need for embodied skills yeah. as well. So we can have all the education we like and. Um, if, if we can then not go out into the environment and know how to mulch things and do raised garden beds and plant right. trees and make fires, and it's incredibly important that come, that come out in embodied power through skills, through physicality, through craft. Um, and, and that is also a way of spanning the human and other than human worlds because you can, you can get out into the world and do things. You're not just stuck in yeah. your head with your concerns. Yeah, that's something yeah. we've had students regularly come to us or people interested in the project throughout the years who are there. They have an education. Mm -hmm. They have one or multiple you know, years of sometimes they have degrees, sometimes they have graduate degrees. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they come to us with a sense of, gosh, I did all that education, but I still don't think I really know how to do anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a sense of, 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 of missing some very like fundamental part of education that would allow you to impact the world, I guess, yeah. or to or to or to really be self-sustaining in, in some basic way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yes, to be skilled, to be self-reliant or, or, or reliant, knowing how to find collectives. Right. Also social social and, skills uh, like yeah. that. Yeah. And, and I think also spanning the uh, intellectual and physical worlds mm -hmm. is important. Something we definitely emphasize in our workshops. You know, we definitely want to talk about the theory for the practice, or else the practice may not make complete sense. Or it's just like, okay, well, why are we doing? We're doing, we're doing, we're doing, but why? What's the point behind all of this? So being able to step back and have that bigger conversation about the the theories behind it and the and the the studies and the research and the stories and the the everything that weaves into that practice and why it works the way it w does or how we've come to doing something in a particular way is is unbelievably important and it's something we often get kind of it's like well you know so we'll, we'll turn in our the descriptions of our workshops and some people will be like well it's not very practical is it what and we're like Actually, it's incredible. It's, it's very <laughs> practical. Like we're teaching all these different skills in these different ways. And yes, of course, we're having these you know deeper, wider conversations. And um, but but here's the skills, the tangible skills. And that's you know you you see that a, I, we get a, a lot. Um, and it's it's pretty it was, shocking. <laughs> it was Ralph Waldo Emerson, I think, said that the, the, the most what's the word did he use? The most the most abstract is the most practical. Mm. Right. There's yeah. there's a way that's you know yeah the the, the types of, of paradigms I guess is a, is a word that 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 maybe mm -hmm. gets closer to it right mm -hmm. is you know you can really changes the way you act and 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 see right mm -hmm. so yep. yeah 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 um, there's also the notion of or the idea of praxis which right. is which is action informs theory thor theory informs praxis and so on and so on around mm -hmm. and around and around um, 
I think it's also important to realise that you might be into tomatoes or raised beds or rescuing the forest, but there is a story in there. So it's very important to know what story you're living out. There's this idea from Joseph Campbell, which is uh, find the story you're living mm-hmm. or the story will live you. Yeah. So I, th- I think the best kind of education, well, wh- why we do what we do is because we are parts of larger movements. We have strong ideas in what we're doing. It's good to be conscious of what those ideas are, but also to be embodied and skilled as much as you can too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I really want to thank you for coming to Viroqua once again, and I hope to see you back here again soon. And thanks for coming on to the podcast. Well, thank, thank you. you so that much. was a full hour. Are you saying that now? <laughs> Pretty close. <yeah. laughs> okay. Thank but, you so much. All right, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye. Cheers.